最前沿的科学研究。As a scientist and engineer, my biggest goal has always been to push boundaries and innovate in a way that will benefit the world. Dr. Bob Langer has dedicated his life to doing just this, and arguably has done this better than anyone else in recent history. Bob is one of the twelve. Institute professors at MIT. He has written more than 1,000 articles and has over 1,000 patents worldwide, which led to the funding of 400 spin-out companies, including Moderna, Living Proof, and Invivo Therapeutics, just to name a few. He is, in fact, the most cited engineer in the history of engineering. His work has been recognized by a long list of accolades, including the U.S. National Medal of Science, the Draper Prize. The Queen Elizabeth Prize and the Wolf Prize, just to name a very select few. Dr. Langer is one of the few individuals elected to all three National Academies of Medicine, Engineering, and the Sciences, and we're very delighted to have Bob to kick off our first Meet the Legend series on Science Rehashed. Thank you, and welcome to Science Rehashed, Dr. Bob Langer. Why don't you start by introducing yourself? Well, my my name is Bob Langer, and I'm a Institute professor at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. You know, we have a, a fairly good-sized lab. We're doing,、uh, you know, bioengineering research. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and your training, and how your background and training has helped you pioneer a number of fields in biotechnology? So my background is chemical engineering. I was an undergraduate at Cornell, a graduate student at MIT. But then when I finished in 1974 at MIT, I did something very different for a chemical engineer. Most of my colleagues went into the oil industry, and I. Didn't I went actually to do something very different? I ended up doing postdoctoral work in a surgery lab at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School with Judith Folkman, who was a surgeon, and I was the only engineer in the place. And so I learned a lot about medicine, and it gave me a lot of ideas about how I could apply chemical engineering principles to medical problems.、Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of became my background. Well, what inspires you? Well, what inspires me are a couple of things. One, I I like. Science and I like engineering, but I also want to see it do good for people. You know, I want to see、right. it make a difference in people's lives, and so, and I also, you know, I love working with my students and the postdocs. I love seeing them do good things and have good, happy lives too.、Mm-hmm. So you have mentored hundreds of postdocs and students throughout your career so far. What would you say are the qualities and skills that are necessary for a successful career? I mean, it depends on the career, but if they're going into science in some way, I think it's good to be curious. It's good to work hard. It's good to be smart. Th- these are probably very straightforward things. I think you want to have passion. You you want to have tremendous persistence. You know, not give up. You you want to think that most things are possible. You want to be realistic.、Um, Uh, but you know, those are some of the things. And in terms of persistence, and I know in your career, when you first kind of started transitioning from chemical engineering to the biomedical sciences, it was、um, relatively a difficult transition. Can you tell us a little bit about how you persisted, and what you were thinking about at the time? Well, when I went to Children's Hospital, there were two or three significant issues. One is, of course, I knew really very little about biology. Still, the last time I had a biology or any type of course like that was in tenth grade, <laughs> and so it was really hard for me to, you know, learn things. And I'd go back and forth between reading and doing experiments, and and that was a challenge. But then also. 
the work I did, I was the, really the goal of the work we were doing was to see if we could prove that substances that stop blood vessels existed. And, and that was a very controversial thing. Most people felt there wasn't. Mm -hmm. And my job was really to prove that there was. And in so doing, isolate the first substances that did that. And, and that involved developing assays using uh, plastics, polymers that could release these molecules, mm -hmm. which were often large. And really, so there were several big obstacles. First, we were trying to solve a problem that people didn't even think existed. Secondly, and, and when I did that, I think the, we published a paper in Science in 1976. People were skeptical though that would help launch that field. And of course, today there are molecules like Avastin and many others, you know, that have come out because, you know, I think we were able to change people's thinking and develop technologies and techniques like bioassays that people would use. And that gets to the second thing. The bioassay was something that involved a plastics that we developed that could release molecules of any size for mm -hmm. hundreds of days. And people didn't think that was possible either. And I got ridiculed uh, early on. Uh, those were both scientific obstacles. And then, of course, the price I ended up paying for that were several things. One, when I tried to get grants, my first nine were rejected, I mean, mm -hmm. really badly. And a lot of reviewers would say that, you know, that a chemical engineer really can't do biological or cancer research mm -hmm. and shouldn't get funded. On the other hand, I couldn't get a job in a chemical engineering department, which was, you know, to be an assistant professor because all the chemical engineering departments felt that this biological work that I was doing made no sense mm -hmm. for a chemical engineering department. So no chemical engineering department in the country hired me. And then finally, I got a job in a nutrition department because the guy who was head of it liked me, but he was kind of like a benevolent dictator kind of person. And he didn't ask anybody else in the department what they thought. So, uh, which was still probably okay, except that he left the year after I came. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the senior faculty there decided to give me advice and their advice is I ought to leave too. Yeah. So that was a pretty, pretty, pretty rocky start. Yeah, sounds like it. So what convinced you um, in terms of your science that, you know, even though everyone else was doubting it, that this is something that's working? Well, well really, both those things, the blood vessel work and the polymer work, what was really good about them for me, and I, I, I did the experiments myself, and, and you, in both cases, you could see things with your own eyes. I mean, you didn't even have to do it on a molecular level. Mm -hmm. I mean, the blood vessel assay we had was looking at an eye of a rabbit, and you could see the blood vessels just forming a zone mm -hmm. of inhibition around the, the implants we had. And you never saw that with controls. And we did thousands of controls. And the same thing with the slow-release polymers. I developed this assay where I, I had dyes, you know, and, and the dyes would change color mm -hmm. if the molecules released. And I remember most of the formulations that I developed didn't work because the dye would change color for, you know, maybe an hour or two, and then it would stop. But then finally, I hit upon some that would change not just for an hour or two, but every day I'd change. Even 100 days later, it kept changing color. So you could see with your own eyes that, you know, this, these things were really working. And mm -hmm. that was really exciting to me to see that this was happening. Do you have any favorite paper or startup? Favorite papers? I mean, those two early papers in Science and Nature in 1976, those were papers I like a lot. I don't know if they're my absolute <laughs> favorites, but they're, they're, they're up there. And, and, and kind of for different reasons, it also, they also helped get me started too. 
startups, that's hard to say. I mean, there's different ones. I mean, the first startup was Enzatech, which ultimately became two companies, one of which now is, is largely Alchemies. And, but then more recently, you know, we started Moderna and that's, right. that's a very exciting company. And, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of others too. Frequency just went public last week and that's exciting. All, almost all of them excite mm -hmm. me because they offer the opportunity to take the things that we've been involved in and, and get them out to patients. They've also created thousands and thousands of jobs and mm -hmm. many for people in our lab who've had leadership positions in these companies. And I love seeing that happen too. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's been a win-win for, uh, you know, a lot of people. So um, you spun out a, you know, a number of companies. What do you kind of look for in a breakthrough research idea and how do you go from the idea to a company? Yeah, well, I mean, to me, if it comes from the lab, you, you know, you hope that you have an idea that's transformative in, in a significant way, mm -hmm. but also you, you need much more than the idea. You want to reduce it to practice. You want to have solid papers. Mm -hmm. And if it's some type of drug or device, you want to show that it at least works in a significant animal mm -hmm. model or animal models. I think you want to take it pretty far along. Mm -hmm. I mean, the road and try to create new medicines is very long, very expensive. So you, if you're going to ask for money, you want to reduce the risk as much as possible. Also, you know, you want to have good intellectual property. Most of the times that we've done these companies, there have been students in the lab or postdocs in the lab who spent a significant amount of time developing these things. They want to see what they did make a difference in people's lives. So actually, just as an example, we got funding from Bill Gates to develop these super long acting pills or capsules. And, you know, they, you can now take a capsule that lasts for a week or a month. And, you know, their goal at the Gates Foundation is treatments for malaria mm -hmm. and, and better birth control and other kinds of things, uh, which is also something that's very important to us. But at any rate, when we did that, we published papers in science and nature journals. Then we and the Gates Foundation, everybody wanted to see this go further. So it turned out like about five people from our lab went to help start the company mm -hmm. because they had wanted to see it make a difference in people's lives. So that's also very important because they're super passionate, you know, having spent the time in the lab doing this, they wanted to see it take the next step. And, you know, now these have been tested in like over 100 patients. The company is like over 50 people. So that's been really nice thing to see. And I, I hope it will lead to new treatments for a lot of diseases. What are the best pieces of advice that you can give to somebody who wants to start a company? I have read somewhere that one of the rules is that the researcher needs to spend at least five years on the idea to develop the idea before taking it to the startup. Again, it goes back to the fact that the path to pharmaceuticals and medical devices, anything in medicine is, is usually pretty long. And, and so I think if you don't get this reduction to practice to a significant degree, then that's where the five years comes in. I mean, or however much amount of time, but usually it's significant because, I mean, my experience, if I look at most things, it usually takes a good 20 years I mean, the angiogenesis story is a good example. Right. I mean, that took 28 years from our paper in science until Genentech came out with the first angiogenesis drug. That was Avastin, which mm -hmm. has been a huge blockbuster, and there are now many others too. But those times are, I mean, I, I wish it was shorter, but it's not. I mean, almost always the time from discovery to launching it is a really long time. What's your opinion on Theranis, and did you notice any effect on startup? culture after the fallout from Theranus? 
Yeah, well, I, I, I know the Theranos story from multiple ways. I, I had Elizabeth Holmes once or twice, and, and I actually knew her advisor, Channing Robertson. Obviously, it's not a good story. I, I think, you know, it may be exaggerated in some ways, but that's what people do in terms of trying to make it worse than it seems. The press gets a hold of it. But, you know, I think she was trying to do something good, but it ended up being bad. And I think I think it's had some small effect on companies and doing blood testing. I don't think it has had much of an effect on most companies. I mean, I think there are bigger issues that, that hurt biotech companies th- than that. But it's mm-hmm. obviously, you know, certainly a negative thing. And it's, an, you know, you never want to see those things happen. Going back to what you mentioned about malaria drugs. So you focus on both kind of drug delivery in the general sense, but also drug delivery targeted at specific disease such as malaria. So what are some of the challenges and the differences and the challenges that have occurred and how have you overcome them? So I think there are different kinds of challenges. So sometimes you're trying to develop what I'll call as a core technology mm. and the core technology might be the microsphere or nanosphere that can release anything. Sometimes you're trying to do work that's more focused and maybe, I mean, in the case of the malaria drug, what we wanted to do and the Gates Foundation wanted to do was have a capsule or pill that would deliver a drug ivermectin and have it last for at least two weeks. So, you know, we use that as a model Mm -hmm. and that's in a paper in Science Translational Medicine and that's moving forward now through actually moving forward through the work at Lindra, uh, you know, to hopefully get that into patients. But what I would say is that every molecule is different. So you have to look at at formulation aspect. How do you put it in in a way that it's stable? Mm -hmm. How do you adjust to to get the right release rates and so forth? So, But the core technology was probably the first step. And then once you have that core technology and you understand it well enough, then you can apply that to anything. And you can apply that to the, the malaria problem or hopefully any problem. Okay. And then when you approach these, do you kind of think about, you know, the core technology first and then the application or typically would you have an application in mind and then develop kind of the core technology that would resolve that problem? Well, we've done both. It depends. You know, we've been approached. I mean, a lot of times when I've just done it myself or dreamed something up, it's like a core technology. But over the years, you know, we've been approached by the Gates Foundation and and Bill Gates himself. We've been approached by Juvenile Diabetes Foundation. Uh, You know, now there are people in the Parkinson's area that have come to see me about possibly doing something there. You know, so we've done both. But a lot of it's the same kind of thinking that you apply to it, you know, so and usually it involves solving some pretty fundamental problems. Mm -hmm. And do you think will we ever cure devastating diseases like cancer? Well, I do think we'll someday cure them, but I don't think it's going to happen quickly. But I think we'll make more and more improvements on those diseases. I think that's happening already. And I think it will continue to happen. But it's not a fast process. But I think that someday, sure. But someday, maybe a a long ways from now. But I think better and better treatments are, are happening and I think will continue to happen. I think a couple of years ago, you guys started looking at infusing drugs into the brain. So can you kind of comment about what brought up that idea and how that's kind of transformed that area of therapeutics? Well, we've done a number of things with the brain. I mean, you know, one thing we developed, and again, it came from basic research on polymers. We created a new family of polymers called polyanhydrides, which would be surface eroding, and, and that mm-hmm. led to the gliadel wafer. That's actually been used now for the last 23 years and over Mm -hmm. 30 countries. But then we continue to look at other ways of uh, 
doing things in the brain. We work with Mike Sema and Ann Grabiel on a kind of microchip that you could implant anywhere. And then we kind of created a, a version of that called an, an injectrode, which mm-hmm. can infuse things into the brain and even sense things. And that was published in Science Translational Medicine. And, and so you can learn a lot from that. And now uh, Rita Raman, who in our lab, she's working on new kind of nanopumps that might be useful in the brain. So that's certainly an area that I think is very important. And brain disease is certainly something that you'd like to be able to make a contribution to. Do you think one day we can replace the damaged brain parts with computational chips and with enough time I think you can probably do anything right you know thousands of years from now but I don't see that as happening quickly either you know I think um, you, you could probably do some functions that way I think all these things take a long time and brains pretty complicated <laughs> do you believe in fate or serendipity I do I mean I guess the way I look at at serendipity is And I could think of an example there, you know, which one of my students, Armand Chari, did. You know, we were was doing some studies where we were looking at how genes might get inserted into cells. And we had this microfluidic chamber with a little constriction in it that we were using. And we had a gene gun. You know, one day Armand took the gene gun away. And actually, he got the exact same result, which told us it was the constriction that was actually doing something, and squeezing the cells was actually responsible for inserting the genes. And, and that was very serendipitous, and it turns out that that has been a much more effective way, at least in our opinion, of inserting things into cells than you know, electroporation or cell-penetrating peptides or anything else. So you know, so we've written a number of papers on it, but we started a company, Armin CEO of it, actually, called SQZ. And there's a hundred people. And actually, to the cancer point you made, Roche has like a, something like a $1.2 billion deal with, with Squeeze. Mm-hmm. So, but that was totally serendipitous. But I absolutely believe in, in serendipity. I mean, I think it, it happens. You just don't know exactly when or, or how. Are we alone in the universe? I mean, I'm, I, I probably believe that uh, there are other forms of life, but I mean, I'm sure I could be easily <laughs> criticized. There are so many people that, that are more knowledgeable about that than I. You know, Yuri Milner, he's like a big believer in that and mm-hmm. has had, uh, you know, sessions on, on those kinds of things and, and, and different people to speak on it. So I, I think some people certainly think there are, but it, it's hard to know. Mm-hmm. There's been a number of breakthrough ideas from your lab. What do you anticipate is the next frontier in biotechnology and biomedicine? What I'd say is probably a couple of things. First, the next frontier is one that doesn't have a label yet, really. You just don't know how things are going to happen in the future. I think it's amazing. Like if you looked at something 10 years ago, nobody, for example, would have said anything about CRISPR or very few people. Mm-hmm. You know, now everybody talks about it. The beauty of science, and I think what goes on in the world, is that you have all kinds of people doing things and somebody will make discoveries that, You know, we can't even imagine now because they haven't been made. They don't have a label. That being said, I think there's clear areas that are certainly going to have, have more and more attention. I think different types of genetic therapies mm-hmm. with messenger RNA or siRNA or gene editing kinds of approaches are one. I think various kinds of cell therapy, whether it's for cancer or, or regenerative medicine, are going to be another. But I do think that we'll see things that right now we can't even imagine because they haven't happened yet. And that, that will certainly, that'll change the world again. And that, that's exciting. Definitely. So you run a pretty large lab. In fact, I believe one of the largest labs in the world with over 100 people. So how do you manage, you mm-hmm. know, a lab this large? Well, they're very good people. So I think they, they probably don't need, need me very much. 
you know, I think what you want to do is is have wonderful people have enough funding to, you know, make them happy and have ideas that that they're passionate about and have them come up with ideas too. But our lab is a pretty uh, flat organization, and my feeling is when you get great people and and they're working on big problems. It sort of runs itself. I mean, our lab sort of runs itself. What are the best advices that you can give to somebody who just started their own lab? I mean, this may sound overly simplistic, but you know, some people because they're insecure and they're worried right. about tenure and promotion, yeah. you know, will do incremental research so they'll get papers. You know, mm. and and I think that's not the right thing. I'd rather shoot for. Doing something big that can change the world in, in a big way, whether it's basic research or applied research, but some big ideas, and I think that will lead to big papers. It might take longer, but I think you end up feeling better because you may make a huge difference. And so, what what I usually say is, if I like gave a commencement speech, is to dream big. Dream big is about ideas that can change the world, but also recognize, and I think this is important, that you'll run into obstacles. I mean, and, and I use myself as an example because I ran into many, as we went over earlier. And don't give up. You have a team of very interdisciplinary researchers in your lab. What do you think is the importance of having multiple people from different fields coming together to work on one question? Well, for the kind of work we do, having people with ten, twelve different backgrounds is good for a lot of things. One, it stimulates ideas. In other words, like we have several different types of clinicians. You know,、mm-hmm. gastroenterologists, radiologists, ophthalmologists, and and they can identify big problems in their area. And the PhDs they won't necessarily know those problems, but、mm-hmm. they may have ideas using. Polymers or biochemistry or other things that we might be doing that might be able to help solve those problems, and so that's one thing that it can give you ideas and and solutions. Two is some of the things that we end up doing. I mean, they require in the end lots of different disciplines. So having a lot of different backgrounds has really helped. A few decades before, we didn't have any bioengineering departments.、Mm-hmm. What do you predict as a new department that might emerge from these convergence of different disciplines in the future? Well, I probably put that in the same category as you know that we may not know right now, and we sort of have to see how things go and what becomes important. Uh, so it's hard to know. I I do feel like it's good to have departments that are really focused on a on a discipline rather than too specialized. I think having departments that are where you really learn something in depth is is a good thing. I think that's the education you want. You want to learn the fundamentals of chemistry or biology or chemical engineering. And I think, but I mean, maybe there'll be departments of artificial intelligence someday, or there'll be you know even more focused on certain aspects of biology like molecular biology. But it's 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 hard to know. How can we put evidence into practice in medicine, harnessing all the data we have in our patients and meshing it with all the research data for the best care? Well, I think that is where people are starting to look at artificial intelligence as a as an example that you could, yeah, you know, have if you have huge amounts of data, you could look at patterns. You might be able to do better analysis, better、mm-hmm. diagnostics. You know, have the computer. Help you figure things out in、mm. terms of, of of medical problems. I mean, there's already some of that going on at MIT,、uh, like、uh, Dina Katabi's work, and and then Regina Barzili's work on artificial intelligence to、mm. look at、uh, breast cancer. I think that there's a, a number of things that are, are going on. Do you think that one day computers can beat us? Well, I think beat us in. In what way, right? I think the computer already does it. Already beat us in chess. I, I think maybe it does. <laughs> I think it depends in in what way. Where do you do your best thinking? Well, I don't know that I 
think in any one place, you know, I, I, I do it here at MIT and, and I meet with my students and postdocs. I exercise a lot mm -hmm. and I read a lot and I think those times, you know, I listen to music. Sometimes I'm not trying to think, but you just kind of do anyhow. So I think all these ways are, you know, wherever I am, I mean, I, I guess I don't turn off very much, you know, mm -hmm. it's just kind of my personality. <laughs> And what brings you joy outside of the lab and research and all your, you know, company involvement? And you know, I love spending time with my wife and children, and that's probably the number one thing. My family, my friends. I mean, I I exercise a lot. I don't want to say that brings me joy. I do it more so that I hope I live longer. <laughs> but uh, you know, sporting events. You know, I mean, those are some things. Can you tell us a little bit about your family? Well, my wife got her PhD at MIT in neuroscience, though so now she mostly does uh, artwork. She's oh, wow. very good, but she's very smart. And uh, she does, I think, really interesting artwork and has been wonderful with the kids. I mean, she, I think, you know, she could have done anything, but I think her, her mom, you know, worked. And I think she wanted to spend time you know, with our kids. And she, you know, really, I think, made a huge difference in their lives. Mm -hmm. My three kids, uh, Michael's my oldest, he works at uh, Pair Therapeutics doing some business development. That's actually a company that's uh, doing some digital medicine. They've mm -hmm. gotten apps approved for uh, things like opioid addiction to help people get off that. And they've done very well. My daughter actually is a uh, head of uh, corporate strategy at Biogen. She's 28. It's kind of amazing. She's been promoted about six times. And wow. She's done great. And my youngest son, Sam, is, went to Cornell and majored in psychology and is working with some friends to kind of start a start up in the wellness area. Mm. And uh, But they're all, all great kids. I, I, I love spending time with them. And Thank yeah. you very much. Well, thank thank you. you. Thank you for joining us today on Science Rehash. If you love the podcast, please subscribe and give a review on iTunes and Spotify, and also share with all your friends. Don't forget to tune in for our next episode. Until next time.